Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Can I have a gun? Absolutely no. not. Okay, Jesus, fine. I'll just throw a fucking sandwich at them. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decoding TV, a podcast about television. I am David Chen. And I'm Christian Spicer. On today's episode of Decoding TV, we're going to be discussing The Last of Us Season 1, Episode 2, entitled Infected. If you're just joining us for the first time, what we do here on Decoding TV is we uh, recap, we spoil, we speculate, but we, uh, we do not spoil anything from future week's episodes of the show. That includes anything on the next time on preview. It also includes anything from the game. So we are talking about The Last of Us purely from the perspective of a show watcher. If you've never played the game, you don't want to know the ending of it or, or any other spoilers, this is a safe place to be. You can find more episodes of this podcast at podcast.decodingtv.com. Email us at decodingtv at gmail.com. And find us on TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube, and Instagram at decodingtv. Now, uh, I do want to point out a few things. Like we, we got a bunch of feedback from last week's episode. Um, and... We are going to be trying to put out bonus episodes pretty regularly. Um, if you're listening on the main feed, you got one free bonus episode already. To get the rest of the bonus episodes, uh, go to decodingtv.com. Become a paid member uh, at decodingtv.com. Uh, it's those people that are helping to support this podcast. Um, so we hope you'll consider becoming a paid member at decodingtv.com. Uh, get bonus episodes. Support the show. Uh, get early access to episodes. It's a great time. Um, but... Uh, on the bonus episodes, we will be probably making more video game to show comparisons. Going to try to be non-spoilery on there as well. Uh, but that's what we're doing with the bonus episodes and with the paid memberships at DecodingTV.com. Uh, let's talk about some of the responses to last week's episode of the podcast, though, Christian. Uh, now, as we're recording right now, Season 1, Episode 1 has already uh, debuted. Uh, but we're recording in advance of Season 1, Episode 2. Uh, and apparently, The Last of Us is a hit. Uh, who'd have thought? Who'd have thought? Uh, but yeah, Last of Us Episode 1 was one of the most successful premieres in HBO's history. It racked up 4.7 million viewers. Uh, that's extremely strong for a show of this kind on a network of this kind. Um, so anyway, just wanted to acknowledge, great job to everyone working on the show. And uh, Christian, I know you're really steeped into that community. I don't know what you've heard as well, but... Uh, anyway, wanted to, uh, to, to, to acknowledge that The Last of Us is, is doing gangbusters. We'll see if it can build on that and continue to grow or if uh, it'll decline over the season. But I, I think it will continue to grow is my guess. Yeah, I mean, the way the first episode went and ends and, you know, how it kind of leaves folks hanging, I think it certainly builds. It's not like, oh, that was fun. <laughs> you know, I'll walk away from it after that point. I think it really <laughs> has its hooks in people um, narratively, and it's a compelling story. Uh, and when I saw this headline, all I saw was like, yeah, take that, White Lotus. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I I always find those like most watched headlines interesting about how they're parsed and carved and 
you know, uh, I, I like baseball, so I always love stats where it's like, this is pitcher's best game ever on a Wednesday night <laughs> after 7 p.m. when mm-hmm. handed the ball when it's over 40 degrees out. But this wasn't that. This was a straight this was up. A straight up vi- like victory, like no, yeah. no unquestionable, unquestionable yeah. success. So our biggest uh, premiere in January ever. You know, it wasn't that. It was like, <laughs> yeah, boom. It was like, that's big a big, 4.7 big number. Yeah, so. Uh, again, nicely done to everyone who's worked on the show, and uh, we'll see how things uh, evolve. Uh, I wanted to correct and acknowledge a bunch of things that uh, happened from the first episode of the show and also of the podcast. First of all, there was some debate about... Uh, so we're going to spoil episode one of the show, but basically uh, in the episode, about the halfway point, we meet a young child. I think he's called the boy in the credits. Um, but a young child shows up at the QZ and a FEDRA agent kind of figures out that he's infected and decides to uh, put him out of his misery. And I saw a lot of people comment on our episode saying like, yeah, did you know that that boy was the one that Joel burns in the next scene? And I had a very out of body experience because I'm like, I, th- I thought we said that on the show. This has happened multiple times where I thought we said it on the podcast, but then people will comment and say, hey, did you know that? the th-? And it's like, yes, that that boy that got diagnosed you know, as a zombie with a red screen and everything in the first episode. Um, in the following scene, Joel throws that boy's dead body into a fire. So like, I, didn't, uh, I thought we made that clear, but um, I, I think that scene does a bunch of different things. It like, introduces how cold and calculating this future is, shows you how Joel has changed and how he doesn't even uh, blink when it comes to disposing of a child's dead body. Uh, and sh- shows you how much he's changed over the intervening 20 years. So, like, anyway, wanted to acknowledge that scene. Also, Christian, on last week's episode, you said, like, the look on that Fedra woman's face was, like, one of compassion. And I said, I didn't really pick that up. Rewatched it again. I still think it's ambiguous. But uh, I do think the compassion read is, like, a very strong one. It's like, yes, that I think you're probably right about that. But I do think it's, like, open to interpretation. I like um, so that I you're like, I'm going to rewatch the scene just to see if Christian got this take wrong. Well, to be fair, a lot a lot of people also said the same <laughs> thing right. about that woman's face and like her um, expression when she decides <laughs> when she decides she's going to, you know, euthanize him, basically. Yeah. So a uh, couple of other things, you know, one of the great things about DecodingTV.com is people can comment, share their thoughts on it uh, on the show. Uh, Jesper commented at DecodingTV.com regarding the idea of fungus destroying humanity. It isn't that far fetched. There are already a great deal of problems with fungus in some parts of the world, like India, where they had uh, they at least had a black fungus problem. Uh, I was also at a get-together last year where there was a girl who had a PhD in biology with a focus on fungus, and she said about as much as they do in the intro of the show. What is, quote-unquote, saving us right now, uh, as I say in the show, is that fungus cannot survive over 34 to 35 degrees Celsius. Uh, human beings have a body temperature of 36 to 37 degrees Celsius. However, with climate change making the world hotter, there's a real concern that fungus will evolve to withstand a higher temperature, which could create a problem for us since they then would be able to survive in our bodies. Uh, in the real world, it wouldn't take the route of creating zombies, of course, but rather some really bad infections that people would die from. But the end point remains the same. Humanity faces a really tough time. Love the show and we'll continue to listen to the recaps, end quote. <laughs> uh, this is a, a phenomenon also in our White Lotus recaps, Christian, where... People would like issue like a very stirring statement about like humanity is doomed. Our relationships are a fiction and love is a projection, you know, and then P.S. like love the podcast. <laughs> just, like, <laughs> just this juxtaposition of like the most upsetting declarations ever followed by love the podcast. But thanks, Jesper, 
uh, for commenting at decodingtv.com. Anyway, Christian, any reaction to that? I want to go to those parties where I, I picture it's a room full of a whole <laughs> bunch of PhDs just mm-hmm. uh, talking about how they think humanity will come to a downfall. And it's just yes. kind of this competing cacophony of like, actually, and then it's, you leave and you're like, fun party. <laughs> <laughs> That's what all the mycology parties are like these days, is my mm-hmm. understanding. Uh, mm-hmm. The mycology meetups. Hot ticket. Hot ticket. <laughs> uh, okay, last week on the podcast, we were doubtful, about, or not doubtful. Uh, I was like questioning what the deal with was showing the specific date that they show in the show, which I think is September 26th. Am I right about that? Um, yeah. Outbreak and, day. And, and yeah, and, so, and we pointed out in the bonus episode, it's outbreak day, uh, but... Many people also wrote in to decodingtv at gmail.com to point out that that is also Joel's birthday. And by the way, also the date where uh, Joel's daughter died, uh, presumably that night or maybe shortly after that night. Um, so pretty rough birthday. Uh, the outbreak day and also the date your daughter died. Uh, it reminds me of my days as a wedding photographer, Christian, where people would uh, say that like wedding venues, September 11th, Mm. Uh, is like one of the cheapest days to get married. And uh, if you think about it, that's a pretty rough day to get married because it's not just like getting married on September 11th. It's like every year you have to celebrate your anniversary on September 11th too. Uh, So I can understand why that day would be pretty radioactive uh, for many people who want to get married. Anyway, want to acknowledge like the date is significant for a variety of reasons in the show. So uh, thanks for all the people who wrote in about that. And finally, uh, Christian, I think you had a, a little Easter egg. You know, we are, we are not an Easter egg podcast like a lot of other YouTube channels and podcasts do this better than us. So we're not going to try to be that. Uh, we're just going to try to offer you our uh, unvarnished opinions and critiques of the show. But uh, Christian, you had a, a little Easter egg in terms of casting uh, that's happening in, in Last of Us TV show, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know if I'd call this like, yeah, like a tiny detail Easter egg, but something cool for folks who might not know. But Marlene is played by um, Earl Dandridge, I believe is how you would pronounce her last name. Apologies if I got that incorrect, but it is the same actor from um, the game who also played Marlene. Uh, She also played Alex in Half-Life Alex 2, and she has a a bunch of great video game uh, pedigree um, roles, uh, and now watching her bring this iconic character from the video game to screen herself is cool. Cause it's not often that you see the same actor play the roles across adaptations for a variety of reasons, age, size, you know, with the lead, like this person's too tall, this person's too short. How are we going to do that? This person's 24 and the character's 16. Right. Um, uh, Ellie in the video game is played by like a full grown woman, right? So um, you can't, it wouldn't make sense for her to play the character in the show. Uh, but I also, when I watched Marlene in the show, I was like, wow, that, that character bears a striking resemblance to Marlene in the video game. And it turns out it's because it's the same person. So yeah. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, very, very cool to see a character play the same, a person play the same character in both show and video game. Uh, anyway, so those are just a few of the follow-ups from last week, but let's dive into this, uh, episode of the last of us the last of us season one episode two entitled infected christian spicer let's talk about overall thoughts on this episode what'd you think um i i loved it 
I know you're not supposed to use just like a whole bunch of adjectives uh, or, or to say like really, 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 really when you describe something. Um, you and I both talked about how we liked the pilot. I think this episode was uh, above and beyond the pilot. I know it didn't have the heavy lifting that the pilot needed to do in terms of setting up the world, but this felt like such a taut, tight episode that still brought so much additional world building to the table, character development, heartfelt moments between characters, watching their relationships already be strained um, across various touch points, and also some really awesome um, action, intense moments that I thought were shot and directed really, really well. Like it, it is an episode that didn't take a whole bunch of time in terms of the actual time of the characters, you know, in their journey, it's a couple of hours or whatever it is, but so much was packed into those hours. Um, and I thought it was really, um, really taut. And, um, I I think sets up this show for some tense moments going forward. I really liked it as well. Uh, I thought it was interesting on a number of levels in TV writing. I believe there's a concept of, like the A story and the B story, right? Often in sitcoms, dramas, whatever, there's usually parallel stories going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's many reasons for this, like pacing. Um, it's also like to get, if there's, if one story is like really tense, like the other story can help diffuse the tension. Uh, so there's a lot of reasons why there's an A story and B story. I feel like there was no B story in this episode. I feel like we just primarily followed these three characters for for pretty much the whole time. Uh, which is interesting and also like uh, refreshing, but also like obviously has its limits. Uh, that said, I, I, you know, one of the questions that one has when watching a show based off a video game is like a lot of the thrills from a video game like The Last of Us, and also you know Uncharted, Naughty Dog's other video games stuff is like many of these video games are packed with these set pieces, right? Like Mm -hmm. set pieces where like a series of like big action beats occur and it's thrilling and exciting. And it's like, well, obviously their take, they kind of are inspired by um, cinema and TV. And it's like, can you translate that back into cinema and TV? And I think it's like with this episode, they've showed, yes, we can, we can have like a straight up genre piece of horror filmmaking. That's really tense uh, and have it be successful as part of like this broader story. So um, overall, I thought it was pretty pretty solid episode. Pretty solid episode. So uh, those are our overall thoughts on season one, episode two. Christian, let's start with the scene by scene. Let's start by talking about what happens at the opening of the episode. Uh, flashback to, I believe it's a couple days before Joel's birthday, aka outbreak day, aka the day where Sarah dies. Um, and we go, we cut back to seemingly right as the outbreak begins in Jakarta, Indonesia. I thought it was clever that in the first episode. There's they pause for a moment for the characters to discuss like where's Jakarta and you know so that you know that it's like connected to that uh, because otherwise you might hear it on the radio and not clock it you know um, but uh, we soldiers pick up Ibu Ratna a professor of mycology at the University of Indonesia she's eating lunch uh, but they interrupt her and they have her examine a cordyceps infected body and ask her what her opinion is um, she doesn't think cordyceps can survive in humans until she sees the body for herself there's a lot of cool moments she like cuts into the body and it's all messed up on the inside. Um, the government tells her that there's, they are spreading through bites on humans and people are spreading it to other people. And they ask her like, what should the government do? And she's like, bomb this whole situation to hell. 
We're all screwed. Please may I be with my family. Uh, so that's uh, that's the stuff from Jakarta. Then we cut to opening credits. And so it gives us a little bit more insight into how this started and gives us uh, a view into the broader world around uh, what's going on with the main characters of The Last of Us. What did you think of this intro, Christian? I really liked it as a as a cold open. I also like it as we're establishing potentially patterns in the structure of the show. The pilot's cold open was so far in the past, right? From the events of the then outbreak daytime, and then even more so from present day with Joel, Ellie, and Tess on their adventure. And now we're seeing a flashback that is much closer to that initial outbreak. And so, you know, we're getting to this point that I think where these cold opens aren't going to only be intellectual lectures talking. Like you could picture some shows where it's like, oh, we're going to have stuffy intellectuals saying the theme of the warning, you know, at the beginning of each show as they, uh-huh. and you could uh-huh. make that cool. And I could see that, you know, Chernobyl-esque where it's like, oh, cold open with Russian saying X because it will never happen. And then you watch the show and it's like, guess what happened? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And in this cold open, it's already telling us that that isn't going to be the trend. At least it doesn't seem that way. And so I thought it was really effective in providing additional information about how bad this um, plague is on humanity. Again, without really lecturing home what it is here, you have this expert on it and her reaction. One is no, that this can't be right. And then when she sees it with her own eyes, that moment where she runs out of the exam room and then it's just sitting there kind of dumbstruck. And then, you know, as it hits her, the, I, I think here, maybe we'll be in agreement, the tears welling up in her eyes and saying, I just bomb it all. P.S. I'm here, you know, like it's not don't bomb me. It's bomb it all. And I just want to mm-hmm. be with my family. It's like, oof. Yeah, no one's no one's going to have a good day. Yeah, uh, I, I, I got to say, Christian, I'm a little torn on this cold open. OK, so when I watched it, I was like, this is awesome. When I watched the first time, I was like, this is amazing. I love this because, first of all, uh, we rarely see Indonesia depicted in any capacity in American pop culture. So it's just cool that we're in Indonesia and there's an Indonesian mycologist. And like it's like, oh, this is like a relatively reasonable depiction of how this might unfold in real life. Like, um, And it shows like they, you know, they have experts. They tried to solve the problem in their own way. But like, obviously, people from there knew that this was coming. Um, and so it's like... It's a pretty cool um, kind of way of of broadening the aperture of the show. Uh, I also think it ties into this broader idea of like what the show is trying to add to the video game. I talked with my colleague, and you may know this guy. He's just some some chump I podcast with. His name is Jeff Kanata. I talked with him on this uh, the Filmcast podcast about like what is it is you like about the game in the game it, the game is told pretty much entirely from the perspective of a few different characters we like almost never cut away to anything else that's going on um did you like that about the game you know because it feels very claustrophobic it feels like a very intimate story if you liked that then you won't like you mm. know stuff like this because this kind of like omniscient omnipresent perspective of like we're cutting around the world to these other times and places removes that a little bit you know uh so it's it's really about part of, partly it's about what you like but the other part of me that i'm kind of like mm, not sure how i feel about this opening is 
Um, you know, are, are these just going to be like random clips of like stuff that happens b- before like the present day events throughout the rest of the series? You know, like if so, I don't, I think that's kind of like a weird affectation. Like we'll see how it plays. I'm, I'm, I'm basically a little bit apprehensive about how it's going to play out because if it's just like, Hey, we're going to introduce you like all these random characters throughout. It's just like most shows don't do that. Uh, and there's a reason for that is because it feels very randomizing and weird to like spend a lot of time with characters who we're never going to like, we're not really supposed to be attached to for the rest of the show. Um, so, you know, basically what I'm saying is Christian, I hope that these intro segments are there for a reason beyond just, we're different from the game, you know, like, uh, and that they actually serve some bigger purpose of like, uh, rather, you know, and they are serving a purpose of like giving us more context, but, um, I, I wonder if they serve like a, a, a bigger, like character purpose or storytelling purpose. Uh, what, I mean, one of the things that they do, you know, I guess, as I'm reflecting on it, one of the things they do establish in this episode is like that they did bomb a bunch of cities and that's kind of explained in the opening. Um, and so maybe it's kind of like a short, it's like a shortcut of like, we don't need to explain the bombing as much because we had that intro segment, but it's just, it's still kind of like, huh? Like it feels a little bit weird, like a kind of a weird, like, Hey, here's a different random thing. You know, like, uh, another example that comes to mind is like six feet under, uh, where like, they'll show you like a completely different person, but like, that's intimately tied in thematically with, the rest of the episode in six feet under, you know, anyway, I've been going on for a long time. What do you think, Christian? Am I, am yeah. I overreacting? No, I don't think so. I mean, I don't think we've seen the pattern established yet. Yeah, right. We're two episodes in. And so I like that. It's not the same thing we saw in the first episode, but hearing you talk about it now, I wonder if this is kind of a, uh, an attempt to keep the main story focused. And mm-hmm. I think your word was claustrophobic. So like the main story after the title screen, it is just your main characters. Yeah. But this cold open gives them room to play. And and I think it is thematically related to the episode. At least it has been so far. And I would argue that this that this Jakarta cold open is um, the idea of the suffocation of hope. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, doubt plus evidence equals, oh, crap, we're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> and I think yeah. we see that reflected throughout the episode with um, some pushback of hope, find hope, find hope, you know, seek, seek positive outcomes here as well. It's not all oppressive, but I think that cold open kind of sets the stage for, I I'm just going to go home to die. Um, that we do mm. see reflected throughout the show, uh, at least through, I mean, sorry, through this next episode. Yeah. For, for, yeah. Through the episode. I mean, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I'm, I'm probably, nitpicking this to hell and you know uh and being unreasonable about it but i just you know just pausing to kind of reflect on like uh what is the function basically of having a segment in the beginning uh that is pretty much we're we're meeting characters that we will never interact with again most likely right like what is the function a podcast where you get to do that you know just like Mm -hmm. nitpick shows that sounds like i'd listen (laughs) <laughs> many people decide not to though but um <laughs> but uh but yeah and also by the way i'm assuming a lot of things i'm assuming we won't meet these characters again you know like right I, I, maybe it's possible we're gonna meet older version of those scientist guys from uh, older version of big head from the first episode you know like older version of this uh, I, I, uh, uh ratna from this episode ibu ratna from this episode who knows um 
and I, th- I think that would make it makes more sense to me. I, I will say they did a pretty good job of like, it's pretty deliberately paced for yeah. an opening set. You know, like she's eating lunch. It's not, they could have done it in like 30 seconds, but they're like, she's eating lunch. They interrupt her. Like they, they try to do like set the table and the set the tone and the mood and everything like that. So um, it's just interesting. I'm sorry to, to spend so much time on it, but I just find it like all these adaptation decisions to be really interesting. Okay. Let's move on to the actual episode itself. Um, so it's the next day from last episode. Ellie, Tess, and Joel are in a destroyed building. Ellie wakes up from sleeping. Uh, Joel and Tess still don't fully trust Ellie. Uh, they d- don't fully trust that she's not actually infected. Uh, he wants to take her back to the QZ, but Tess is like, hey, if we take her back to the QZ, we get nothing. We still need this battery. Um, there's also like a pretty funny part of this episode where Ellie needs to communicate to Joel and Tess, like, what is going on? Like, why why is she significant? And so it's funny because last episode, Marlene said, hey, uh, <laughs> Ellie, you can't say anything or you will certainly die. And so then Ellie makes this comment of, like, she told me not to tell anyone. And now I'm telling the first person uh, that I'm coming across. But it's like, it's a pretty reasonable thing for her to tell because Joel and Tess are pretty pissed at her at that point. And, uh, and it's good for the audience to know what's going on as well. So we also get some more details about like, uh, Ellie and Marlene's relationship. Like Ellie tells them Marlene, uh, found her after she was bitten. Like, uh, the, after she's bitten, then Marlene figured out like, Hey, she's not infected. And that's when they began testing her. I still think we have more details of that, about that to come out at some point in the future. But, uh, anyway, and then they, uh, decide that we're going to try to get, uh, Ellie to her destination. And they head out into uh, into the the beyond the QZ zone. Uh, Christian, any thoughts on these opening scenes where we get a little bit more detail uh, and and kind of they decide what they're going to do with Ellie? So I think we talked about last episode of Ellie and this character of being you know an abrasive teen or tween, and yeah. I think seeing her here in the morning, um, I, I really like how how what the energy that Bella is bringing to this character or or as she's being directed in in this performance. And I feel like it does walk that line of a kid who's been born into this horrible world and now thrust in a even more horrible situation, but finding a way to, I'm trying to put myself in that situation and be like, here are two adults that this other adult that you maybe didn't trust is telling you to trust you know that you've heard horrible things about the city at large. And now these two people are your only lifeline. Like how do you get them to trust you? And I think the moment where she gives them like, Oh my, like, as you mentioned, like, Oh my God, I'm telling the first people that, but like, it's such an effective moment. I think for this teenager to try to connect with these two curmudgeons, (laughs) right. That like my life's in your hands. I got to create some bond with you for why you need to do this other than get the battery. I think as Tess mentions. Um, So I thought it was really effective, a really powerful scene of Ellie isn't as guarded and jaded and, you know, just like dour on everything the way Joel and Tess seem to be. Um, And I I loved when she, you know, the the moment here uh, where they eat and they're like, Tess, like we can share. And she pulls out this, chicken sandwich that looks like fresh bread yeah. and it's like and they're like joel's nibbling on like one tenth of hardtack or something mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um yeah. 
I really love all of those moments, those small kind of details in that scene of um, who Ellie is and how she contrasts to the life that Joel and Tess have had, despite, you know, living in this um, difficult world. I agree. It really, uh, it really worked for me, like their interaction and you can kind of see how the relationship is starting to develop. So uh, I, I liked all this stuff. Um so then they head out. They're trying to make it to, I think it's the Boston um, State House. Am I right about that? Yeah, the State um, House. It's a very iconic building uh, that has like a gold dome. And, you know, if you've ever seen images of Boston, I used to be from there. So, uh, you know, people will recognize it. So then they head out. We get a sense of like what the city looks like. They explain, hey, the reason why the buildings have fallen down, like zombies wouldn't cause buildings to fall and collapse. And so... Um, you see all these like images of bombed out Boston and it's because they apparently literally tried to bomb it to death. Apparently didn't work super well um, because obviously the infected are still out there. So, um, but yeah, they head out into the world and you know what I bet would allow them to head out into the world in a more efficient fashion, Christian Spicer, uh, an electric vehicle from Nissan. And I say that because this episode of decoding TV is brought to you by Nissan. Uh, as a pioneer in the electrical vehicle, uh, electric vehicle space, Nissan is always looking for ways to deliver new, meaningful technologies to EV owners. After all, Nissan's been making EVs since 1947. Their EVs have now traveled 8 billion miles by Nissan Leaf owners since 2010. 8 billion. That's the equivalent of driving to Pluto and back. If you think that's electrifying, one of their EVs trekked all the way to the North Pole, and Nissan even tests their EV technology on the Formula E racetrack. But Nissan knows you don't just get an EV for the E, you get a Nissan EV because it makes you feel electric, because it sparks your imagination, it ignites something within you, it pins you to your seat, and it takes your breath away, very much like the thrills in this episode of The Last of Us. Anyway... That's what Nissan thinks about when designing their EVs like the Nissan Aria and the Nissan Leaf. It's about creating a thrilling design that electrifies its customers. I love Nissan's focus on creating a thrilling drive and electrifying life. In today's world, it's so important to look around you, to pay attention, to look for all the tiny ways that life can electrify you. And let me tell you, Christian, I find this show electrifying not only The Last of Us, but also this podcast dissecting it, figuring out these adaptation changes. It really does give me life in a way that electricity can do to things and creatures and so on and so forth. And in the way that Nissan EVs can do for people. Anyway, thanks to Nissan for sponsoring us today. Nissan EVs that electrify. All right, let's move on, Christian. Uh, So... What else happens? They get into a hotel. And I love that there's a few details here that we learn about Ellie. Um, you know, she, he, Joel asks, like, how do you know about this stuff? And she says, it's called books. Uh, obviously, Ellie's not very nice to Joel yet. Um, maybe she never will be. Uh, but you get a sense of, like, how Ellie learns something. She can't swim, which makes sense because it's like, oh, yeah, of course. There's, there's no swimming pools in the future. Um, so yeah, they kind of tr- start making their way through this hotel. Um, and there's a section where they kind of ver- like this episode felt like very overtly video gamey to me where like, there's often in a, a video game trope where like one of your companions like leaves your presence to like go open a door or something like that. Um, but I felt it worked within the context of the show. Um, and you see that like Joel and Ellie start to get, to know each other via small talk. 
Um, we learn Joel has killed lots of infected. He shares that killing them is sometimes hard, knowing that there were people once. Um, and we also get a sense of like how old some of these infected are. Like some of them, like most of them, like don't. It's, it seems like most of them don't survive for f- more than a few weeks, but some of them might be years, if not decades, old. Uh, and so that's an interesting fact to understand as well. Christian, let's pause here for a moment and talk about what we know about the infected, because. You know, usually we'll try not to just bring up a difference in the video game just for, for, for you know, it being a difference and for that sake. But uh, I watched the first episode with my wife and she was quite confused as to how the fungus spread from person to person. In the, sh- in the video game, it's done via spores, right? I believe they have just removed that completely from the show. Like there's no airborne component of the fungus in the show. Um, and I think the reason for that is like, I, I believe that's true. We may be proven wrong later on, but like so far it doesn't seem like anyone's afraid of anything airborne. I believe it's mostly spread via bites and through the blood. That's kind of what our sense is. Um, and I think the reason for that is because it's just a lot easier to grok. Like you, you're not, if I'm watching the show and I'm like, is it airborne? Like, I, I believe in the video game too. The people that survived are people that had some kind of immunity to, to the fungus. Am I right about this, or like, what is your, what am I, am I out of, talking out of school here? Yeah. So some of this stuff I want to save for the bonus show because I don't know if the show will get to it, and I would yeah, consider yeah. it potentially spoilery. Um, in the game, there are a multitude of ways in which this thing can spread, and uh, subscribe, listen to the bonus show. We'll talk yeah. about it there. Because I, I don't want to come. Yep. I don't want to touch it here. Um, just to your point, though, about the the spores in that aspect, I, I do not believe it was some level of immunity. There are because the characters are constantly pulling on gas masks. Oh, they have gas masks. That's right. Yeah. So when they go into those areas and there's a, mm, yeah, a yeah. Ca- moments with, as you would expect, picture the abyss, right? Anytime someone goes into a place where they can't breathe and they're using an apparatus to help them breathe, you know, what adds tension that apparatus not working. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so those are moments in the game. And I, I wonder, I, I, I wonder if reasons for excluding it are, like you said, it's just simpler instead of having this multitude of ways that this thing can spread. Or um, if actors behind gas masks just aren't right. what people paid for, you know, Pedro, pa- pa- Pedro Pascal, ask- Pedro Pascal is like, I'm not doing masks again. Sorry, guys. Say, he, no, ma- he can- no masks like Edna Mode in The Incredibles. No masks. Basically. <laughs> he can certainly act behind a mask. If anyone has proven it, it is <laughs> it is Pedro at this point. But then you run into that thing of like what a lot of the Marvel movies do now, where you're either the camera in the mask showing yeah. the person or any second Spider-Man can, the mask comes off, right. <laughs> you know, and it's like, or they have, they have a nano mask where like, you right. can see, it's like a glass face and you can see, you know, it's very easy to see over it. Yeah. Um, but so yeah, that might be part of it. And then again, just pure speculation. I wonder if it's like, Oh, by making it airborne, that makes it closer to COVID than we want to. Like, we don't want this show mm-hmm. to be yeah. an analog for COVID. Yeah, and that's not the point of this show. You yeah. know, the the video game came out in 2013. Um, COVID wasn't a thing then, so I, I could see any of those reasons being the reason alone, and I could see all of them, you know, being a small part of it for why we're not seeing constant gas maskery. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Th- th- those are all great points, Christian. Um, and yeah, I think that so for the record, it does seem as though it's not airborne in in the show, and 
many they reasons for that. But pause yeah. walking into a space. Like at yes. no point do they hesitate before they walk indoors or, or go anywhere. Yeah. It's very odd to me though, Christian, because in episode one, there is this moment when Joel is like, uh, like unearthing something underneath his floorboards and the, the camera like pauses for a moment on like the light coming through his wind streaming through his window and dust particles in the air. And that was something that really was a visual motif in the game where like there's shit in the air, like spores in the air. And so I was like, Oh, this is a, this is kind of a visual indication that there's like spores in the air of some, or stuff in the air that you need to be aware of, but um, not the case. So that was just me projecting. Uh, but anyway, anyways, for now, we, what we understand is they don't spread by um, airborne stuff. It's spread by bites uh in the in the show uh on that note another thing we learned about the fungus is that um the infected are all connected including to a fungus that grows underground so one infected can single signal another one far away if you step on a patch in one place you can awake others in another place now they know where they are um and so uh, that's interesting uh that's an interesting thing it also it may, it almost makes the the fungus like too op in my opinion, too overpowered, right? Like I'm like, wow, this is um pretty overpowered. But it, it's also a sign to Ellie like just because she's immune to the infection, um, they can still rip her apart and and kill her in other ways. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know uh, what was your thought on this uh, development, which I believe is a show invention, right, Christian? I mean, I, I think it's interesting in general. I think backing up to the idea of like some only live a week and others live twenty years. I. I I'm curious if the show dives into that. I'm curious what that means. Is it just kind of luck of the draw? Like, uh, yeah. you know, the, the mushroom in my backyard that has the right pH balance will grow and thrive. And the other just kind of comes up and dies <laughs> yeah. when there's not enough moisture. Yeah. You know, like how, what that means, what's, and, and Joel says it with some weight, you know, like some are 20 years old or whatever. And it's like, is that scarier? Is that less scary? And, and other zombie media you'll see like the super old ones is like just the jaw on the ground you know and it's like bah, 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 and it's like still alive but not a threat and like yeah the person gets off their motorcycle and steps on it <laughs> you know yeah. and it's like yeah. like the young ones are the ones you need to worry about and this idea of it being able to communicate um i i think stuff like that's fascinating and i don't know you know um in mushrooms, how those, uh, how that might work. I imagine there's real science behind it. I know a grove of Aspen trees is, is one being, you know, like one entity, they all talk underground and through roots and stuff like that. And so I think stuff like that is cool. And I think it also adds suspense, right? Cause now yeah. anytime you see one infected on screen, you as the viewer know what the threat is for these characters. It's not just that one shambly thing it's like oh there might be a thousand somewhere <laughs> that are about yeah. to be like oh we we eaten let's go <laughs> yeah i'm trying to think back to the first episode you, you, you remember when they discover that guy underground that holds his whole body's been taken over by like the in infection and i'm like were they super careful around that guy because maybe maybe the infection was already dead at that point because this episode we also do learn the distinction between you know like he like steps on a on a fungus on the ground he's like oh it's all it's bone dry like it can't do us any harm you know so like um so there is a distinction between like an infection or a fungus that's still alive and one that's dead and, and maybe the, we learn later these things have a radius you know um but right now it feels very overwhelmingly powerful so yes uh, yeah and yeah. they don't hint at like oh this one's dead let's get out the weed killer you know like i think it's interesting like it it can run its course yeah maybe 
but yeah. there doesn't seem to be like they're not agent oranging like Fedra's not out you know crop dusting to kill right. this stuff yeah and so it doesn't seem like it's something that can necessarily be treated um maybe just over time it expires i don't know well well my sense is also that like they don't um they don't have the resources or they decided it's not worth spending the resources to protect anything outside the QZ, you know? Yeah. They're like, we can control everything in the QZ. Anything outside is like not up to us. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, so, and we will rule it with an oppressive hand. Don't you worry. But like outside the QZ, you're on your own. Anyway. Which um, uh, to, to, to Brent, cause uh, you shared this, we, uh, man, I should have had the name, but now that we're talking about it. The, the date in which the fall of civilization happened versus all the things that weren't invented that exist in our life. Um, mm-hmm. A listener chimed in with that stuff. That I think is fascinating. Like this idea of Ellie reading books and stuff. And it's not, they never lost YouTube because they never had YouTube, you know, <laughs> like when that fall <laughs> yeah, of civilization yeah, yeah. happened that I like, they, they didn't, there aren't dead iPhones lying around because there hadn't yeah. been iPhone yet. Um, and so as we explore this bombed out Boston, I think it's interesting to see like the vestiges of the time that like web 2.0 never happened. Yeah. (laughs) Elliot, uh, Elliot, uh, wrote into decoding TV at gmail.com. It's also worth considering because cordyceps happened in 2003, many things we consider a regular part of life never existed or never became what they are today. Like smartphones, YouTube, and much of web 2.0, all the post 2000s movies, music, entertainment, including the original last of us game. Um, so, oh man, Christian, what a bleak world, a world without YouTube and podcasts. Can you imagine what, what, why would people even want to live in that? You know, I mean, books, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Never heard of them. (laughs) Never heard of them. What is a, what is this book you speak of? You know, after, Um, after you read three pages, there's a page in the book where you can comment, you know, like write your mm -hmm. comments in the book Mm -hmm. and then you... (laughs) I've never heard a book ask me to smash that like button. So, like, what is even the point of them is my question. Okay. Uh, but, yeah, that's that's worth keeping in mind uh, that they, they basically, like, have an alternate universe of, like, pop culture and stuff like that in both the video game and the show. All right. So they go into this museum. And they're worried about, like stuff in the museum like basically uh you know throughout the course of the episode they're conversing we learn how ellie first got infected she went into a mall by herself she got bitten um and that's kind of how she got infected and she's an orphan we also learned that about ellie um but they uh, go into this museum and 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 also like sorry they also mentioned that uh, Ellie's like, are there these like super infected or there's like infected where like their head is all split apart. Those are just mythical. Right. You know, like, and of course we learn later on this episode that they're not, um, they're not mythical. So, uh, there's a moment when they're in the museum where like Joel is very practical. I like it. He's like, from this point on it's silent. It's not quiet. We are silent, which is like, uh, very astute and smart of him to do. Uh, and I believe the reason for that is because these uh, zombie-like creatures, they don't have eyes, but they can hear, presumably, right? Because uh, we see this one has his face is all messed up, and uh, but he can still like hear and acknowledge stuff that's going on around him. Uh, this is our first real 
encounter with one of these big, scary, super infected. We've seen the kind of regular human-like zombie ones in the past in the first episode, but this one with the all messed up head and stuff like that. And I have to say, I do think it looked pretty spectacular. Christian, what'd you think? Yes, for folks that watched the trailers, you know, you saw this front and center as as big marketing for the game. But yes, I mean, the makeup, you know, props department, costuming for this this creature and, and it, it they don't shy away from it, right? A lot of times in these type of creature films, you'll always see it blurry. And this thing is front center, fully lit, like a big jump scare moment with this thing yelling at at our characters and it looks horrific. I mean, fantastic horrific <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's really frightening and it's really well done creature design and like uh just really great execution you know because it's like practically how do they do this how, you know i'm wondering how they do this where like you have you put this thing on a person a human's head how are they going to see maybe there's eye holes and they cg them out like who knows but like whatever the way the illusion is is complete it's really well done and um, i and- love I was going to say, I love the way this thing moves. We talked about in the first episode, the kind of freshly infected that was like a bull in the China shop chasing Joel and Sarah. And now we have these infected that they're not shambling, but there is like a twitch to it as it moves slowly. But then once it keys on to something, you know, we're told it sounds like it moves pretty dang precisely, you know, not being able to see but and with a a speed and uh agility that i think is much more threatening than that first infected we saw when joel was chasing sarah like this thing keys on to you you're in trouble you're not running through the back of a restaurant yeah yeah (laughs) yeah um it has like two modes right it has like shambling mode and then boop once it hurts you you're in trouble yeah very very well put so uh, anyway, after like a fairly tense sequence, they are able to take down these uh, creatures. Um, I-, I think we hear them click right in the show. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, and it, I-, I think I don't think it's a spoiler to say in the video game they're called clickers. And the um, same performers uh, did the voice, the the sounds. Ooh, nice. For them yeah. in the show. It's a very creepy, wonderful, evocative sound design. So uh, anyway, they they get away, and Ellie reveals that she's been bitten again. Uh, in the same place, apparently, uh, to to convince you that hey, she really can't get infected. Presumably, um, there's a brief scene where like Joel and Tess are on the roof of the museum, and uh, Tess just wants him to like accept the good news that hey, Ellie is not infected, and like maybe there is a purpose to this mission we're on, and maybe it is going to end up okay. Um, they cross this extremely rickety-looking ladder. And I do want to call out a couple of the Boston landmarks that we've seen this episode. Um, earlier on, we saw the fung- fungal people all being connected and writhing on the ground. That was uh, Quincy Market. I don't know if you've been to Boston before, but it is a very, very uh, popular tourist destination, Quincy Market, where there's usually you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people swarming that area most of the year. Uh, so it's very creepy to see it deserted and overrun by zombies. And then in the background of the shot when they're crossing the ladder, I believe that is the Marriott Boston Customs House, a.k.a. the Boston Clock Tower, which mm. was one of the very the city's very first skyscrapers um, and was the tallest building in Boston from 1950 to 1965. So um, if you're from, I don't think they actually shot this in Boston. I think they probably CG'd or blue screened those in. But I wanted to acknowledge, hey, they, uh, between the State House, the clock tower the quincy market they wanted to kind of give you a sense that this 
this took place in Boston. So and you ever been one, to Boston, Christian? I have. And I thought that one zombie was Tom Brady and the other uh-huh. one was yeah. um, Ray Allen just draining threes from his time <laughs> as a Celtic. Um, I have been to Boston. I did not notice those landmarks, but it, it makes me happy to know that they're authentic because sometimes a lot of shows are filmed in Vancouver, you know, yes. and it's like New York and you're like, that's a, a, that's a, that that's not in New York. Like that, that's the Toronto Maple Leafs. That's not even in Vancouver. Now I'm so confused. Um, I mean, to be fair, I think this does fall into that category. Like, I don't think the street layout or anything resembles Boston at all. Um, but, but basically they nailed the buildings. Like they, they, they tried to do a good job on the buildings is kind of what I'm saying. So, um, anyway, good, good stuff. Uh, before we get to like the final sequence, I am curious if there's anything else we wanted to say about this, uh, everything that's come before. I, I, I do think like the production design, the art direction was really cool inside the museum. Uh, it's a really tense sequence, really well done. Um, evocative in some ways of like a quiet place where like you can't make any noise but um i think actually makes more sense like they they do a really good job of um explaining why they'd be in this situation like for a quiet place it never i never understood <laughs> why in a quiet place you're not just blasting speakers you know all over the, like all the time in like all of the place and like attracting these creatures in the quiet place to like other locations where you are not at, you know what I'm saying? Like, or why the U S military team developed sonic weapons or, you know, like stuff like that. Um, whereas in this show, it does make a little more sense. Oh, they have to go through this one place. They're not like equipped. They don't have like a bunch of, you know you know what I'm saying? Like, um, I thought the show did a good job of establishing why they would be in this peril is what I'm saying. And so. I think also establishing the, this route, right? They have yes. to get from A to B yep. and they talk about there are various ways to kind of get through the city. You see that this is this bombed out city. And as they end up at the museum and there's this moment of like, oh, we should have gone this way to be, I guess, like clearly they had tried it before. It's a known route, but it, it had been yeah. a bad place and kind of like, you know, <laughs> they picture the map being like, not that way anymore. Yeah. But then yeah. they get there and it oh, looks like it's clear. And I think it does a lot of effective horror moments of, you know, setting it up very early on where Ellie is like, oh, but there are these types of infected and they kind of laugh off one like, oh, it throws whatever at you. And they're like, yeah, right. Not don't believe everything you read, kid or whatever. And then they're like, and the ones that are like bats. And then Joel and Tess are like, oh, and it's like, oh, OK, <laughs> OK, we're going to see that. Yeah. And then yeah. The, the being quiet. And then when Ellie steps on the crunch on the stairs, and you're like, here it comes. Nope. OK, not that. So it's really effective, I think, in yeah. building Pace, tension. Pacing. Yeah, yes, and holding really tension for those right moments. Um, I really loved. I I could have watched a feature of like a totally, monster totally. in the house, <laughs> you know, yeah. story just in that museum. I thought it was a really well done sequence. It's like the centerpiece of the episode, you know. So I think it, it, they do a really good job of it. So, all right, final sequence. Uh, Ellie, Tess, and Joel arrive at the state house where they're expecting to meet fireflies to hand Ellie off, but no fireflies are present. Inside, they see a bunch of dead humans, likely the fireflies they were supposed to meet. Um, Tess becomes even more agitated and desperate to get Ellie to where the fireflies are going to take her. And then we learn why Tess was bitten at the museum on her neck. So she's going to turn pretty quickly. And she actually shows it and we see it starting to like turn already. Um, but that's when she like is able to draw a contrast between her bite and Ellie's bite. It's like, she's already infected. Ellie's clearly not. Um, and so Tess says, Joel needs to take Ellie to Bill and Frank's. We don't know who Bill and Frank are. Uh, but we know that they'll take Ellie off Joel's hands. 
and uh, Tess does say like, this is our chance to set things right, to like redeem ourselves, to make everything right uh, from all the terrible things that we've done. Um, so at that point, one person, like one of the dead people on the ground in the, in the state house is like, uh, comes to life from being infected and Joel shoots it, but because they're all connected, all of the infected have been alerted to this and they're, they're now going to like rush the state house. Um, and Tess at that point is like, says, I'll distract them. Uh, and you guys go, you save Ellie, you know, save, save the girl, save the world. Uh, and we see Tess basically like tip over all these gallons of these <laughs> convenient exploding barrels. Uh, and, uh, serve as a diversion uh, before everything goes to hell. So there's a huge explosion. Joel and Ellie are safe outside, uh, and now it's just two of them heading off into the unknown. Uh, what did you think of the sequence, Christian? I mean, we've had uh, this is the second episode now where a, a character dies. Um, a, a, a major character dies, right? So we talked about the cold open about establishing a pattern. Uh, the Game of Game of Thronesification <laughs> of narrative. Um, I am on guard, uh, but I thought it was really effective. And in rewatching the episode, I think there are these really beautiful moments of Tess knowing she was bitten before we learn it. And like right outside the museum when they're on the roof and she's like, Oh, my ankle. And Jill's like, Oh, let me help tape it up. Da, 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 da. And it's like, yeah, maybe her ankle hurts, but I don't think that's the reason Tess is having a moment. And then when they're walking just through parts of the city to get to the state house, like Tess is, you know, 10 steps ahead of them because she's been on the neck. That clock is ticking. She wants to, do this thing, right? Get this done. Yeah. And then and, just, and I should, I should point out, we learned right in episode one as a reminder that like, uh, neck bites, arm bites, like make you become infected faster than like leg or, you know, knee bites or whatever, you know, like the higher up on the body is the faster you become infected. Yeah. Closer to the yeah. brain. It seems yeah, like yeah. the head. Um, and so her clock is ticking and then seeing her just crestfallen when, because even at that moment outside the state house, like Joel's investigating, peeking around, it seems a little, and he's like, hmm, and she's like, what's going on? He opened up the truck, it's empty. And then Tess is just like, nope. She grabs Ellie, walks into the state house, you know, like, with right. the gun. she's like, I am doing this. My clock is ticking. Um, I thought that was, that was really effective. My question for how the world works is I don't know why all of the infected didn't run to them at the museum. Like, mm-hmm. are the the bat like creatures not connected. And cause we see that one on the ground after Jill shoots it. And then you see like little vines come over its fingers to yeah. like, and so I don't did like the, did those I, bat I, creatures not communicate the same way? Like why now? Yeah. Why not then? I, I don't know that we're ever going to get a full explanation of this, but I guess here are some things we can deduce, right? Like it does seem in the show that if they can, shoot the creature's brain or head that that typically like incapacitates them i don't think that's established as a rule in the show but like that does seem to be what's happening and then also it seems like in order for the other creatures to be alerted uh it it needs to be one of those like on the ground live fungal infections that's like Mm. has a root system right um whereas maybe those clickers 
can split off and or are, can be on their own and independent of the root system. But we do get a shot of like you know the root system coming up from the ground and like touching the dead guy on the ground and then it's like oh it's like alerting it so it's, it needs to be like a and i'm calling it a root system i don't think it's a roots if it's fungus but you know what i'm saying like it needs to be a live root system in order for them to be alerted that's that's kind of what i conclude so feels feels reasonable right right christian you know so it, it does i'm curious what your take was on the scene as tess is trying to light the lighter and that I thought it was pretty comes over and I, I thought it was pretty silly i'm gonna be on it like i you know, I'm trying to debate like whether like if they just shown them leaving and then like you hear the exp- like Tess is like, get on without me. And then like next thing you see is like explosion, you know, like would that have been more effective? Because it just felt a little goofy to me. Like would would Tess really react this way? Because she kind of just stands there basically. And I don't know if that's a indication that she's already being taken over by uh, the fungus, you know, like so maybe uh, that's a hint of what that is. But uh didn't didn't love it, didn't hate it, you know. Uh, I was just kind of like, huh, that's kind of an interesting, interesting little touch. It didn't it didn't feel like a very badass uh, sacrifice. I'll just put it that way. Like, and maybe it's not supposed to be right. Um, but, but when I think of Tess, even in the context of the show, not even the video game, she seems like a straight up badass to me. Anna Torv, I think, is awesome in this in this role. Yeah. Um. So I expect her to do like badass stuff, and then for her to kind of just stand there while like the whole thing played out. It just felt a little weird to me, but you know, who, again, maybe it's because they're trying to say like her, her body is already mind controlled a little bit, you know, like maybe that's what the, the show's trying to say. So, um, and yeah, I think you're right. Like her performance is awesome. Like her doing the math about like what's going on. Like it's all, it's all there in the performance. Um, the, her, her like taping up the leg, that was a head fake for me. I was like, wait, is she infected in the leg? You know, like, but she's actually been bitten in the neck. And so that was a fun little surprise. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a very moving sacrifice that they make. And I think Pedro Pascal's performance as Joel is also a really powerful one in that scene because, um, he kind of, uh, let's put it this way. He doesn't need that much convincing, you know, like in a typical show like this, the person would spend like five minutes being like, no, we got to figure out, or they'd be like crying or whatever, you know, like Joel has had those feelings beaten out of him a long ago, you know, never have anything in your life that you are not allowed, you are not ready to walk out on in 30 seconds flat. If you feel um, the storming group of zombies around the corner, you know, like that's kind of what Joel's life is like at this point. And zombie Pacino. Yeah. <laughs> a zombie De Niro, I believe. Actually. Zombie De Niro. That's right. That's zombie yeah. De Niro. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I really, yeah. I like that. Ellie was the character struggling there. Like you can't just leave her. And Joel is right. like, it is done. Yes, we can. And I loved yeah. Joel. When Tess is like, I'm bitten, and she steps toward him, and Joel immediately steps back. He recoils. Back. He recoils, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's like, I, for all I know, you're, you're going to get me. You know, like, he, let right. me see. And he steps yeah. back. I thought it was great. It wasn't, again, compassion. He didn't go to meet her and grab yeah. her hand. Like, yeah. clearly, they have a relationship. But in that moment, it's like, yep, you're done. <laughs> yeah. Damn, you're done. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Overall, dude, just like a really, like, strong episode like a strong piece of genre filmmaking uh i thought it's pretty good pretty good stuff any other thoughts on season one episode two of the last of us uh if they keep you know going this way i think i'm really gonna like this show (laughs) (laughs) i think uh another thing that this mr kanata said on the film cast is like the show is extremely bleak there's almost no humor or lightness at all 
in the show. And I think any humor that's going to come is going to come from Ellie. Like in this episode, she jokes around about being infected and kind of starts twitching. And um, she is like the quote unquote comic relief. But that's a lot of responsibility for this one teenage character to, to shoulder for this show. So I am curious, like if the show will continue to be relentlessly bleak, because there are just a lot of people, Christian, who just don't want to be watching post-apocalyptic stuff right now. Uh, because we've just lived through a pandemic and also we've had a lot of post-apocalyptic shows, some of which are much more optimistic than this one, like station 11, you know? Um, so that said 4.7 million people watch the premiere. So maybe, I don't know what the people actually want, you know? I mean, well, while this show is bleak in the sense that it's maybe believable and it's character driven, one thing I do find interesting about it is that it feels restrained in terms of what you can otherwise see on HBO, like there's not just here's male full frontal because we can, you know, there's not like, yes, there's gore, but it's not Game of Thrones level gore yet. You know, we haven't seen mm-hmm. that level like it's it's visceral and raw. But again, the bites that we've seen, it's not even in the pilot um, when the grandma's bite. You, you, it's not like zooming in on like the larynx yeah. coming out and stuff <laughs> like that. So I think it's. Yeah bleak and oppressive for different reasons and maybe that makes it hit closer to home is that it is you know somewhat believable in a way that game of thrones is like i'm never gonna own a dragon (laughs) so it makes it more lighthearted to watch and and i think there's an open question of like of what is the show's attitude towards humanity like is Mm. there ultimately going to be an optimistic or pessimistic message to the show i literally don't know um I have suspicions, but I, I literally don't know. Uh, but anyway, we'll see how the show continues to deal with tone in the episodes to come. Uh, but overall, I'm I'm really still enjoying the show, and and this is a pretty pretty solid episode. So uh, much more to discuss in the bonus episode as we chat about adaptation decisions. But for now, let's wrap it up for this episode of Decoding TV. Christian Spicer, you want to tell people where they can find more of your work on the internet? Best place is at my website, christianspicer.com. You'll see links uh, to other stuff there as well. I'm on Twitter at Spicer, but that's usually just reposts of things from my blog on my website. And if you like video games and you want to talk about the latest and greatest video games, uh, the aforementioned Jeff Kanata and I host DLC, a video game podcast that you can find at um, dlc.fireside.com. I think is a direct website or also at patreon.com slash DLC pod. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You get exclusive episodes, bonus episodes, all that good stuff, and we're chatting uh, video games. And find more episodes of this podcast at podcast.decodingtv.com. Consider becoming a member supporting the show at decodingtv.com and find us on YouTube, Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram at decodingtv. Uh, that's going to bring us into this week's episode of the podcast. Next week, more discussion of The Last of Us as we recap and spoil and speculate on episode three of The Last of Us. Until then, 
Goodbye.